0: There are so many that uh, I want to thank for making this summer a blessed summer of ministry. And yesterday was a, uh, a part of that with our picnic. And uh, just, I'm thankful for, first of all, for Cliff for Cliff and Joyce for their uh, being on our committee. They are from our church, the only ones on that committee to, to plan and prepare for that and uh, what a wonderful job to, uh, that they did in, in preparation for that. And I want to thank um, those who participated, bringing food, bringing desserts. Um, those also want to uh, thank Heidi and uh, the uh, ensemble for playing the music and and uh praise team also for singing during that time i'm sure you heard comments i heard so many comments of those who enjoyed the time together and enjoyed the music as well so thank you for coming and being a part of that and joining with our grace partner churches and and fellowshipping and uh developing relationships in that so praise god for that (coughs) I'm pleased to be here today. We're going to be looking and continuing in our series in Esther. So turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, our ushers do have Bibles available. Raise your hand and they'll bring a Bible to you that you can use throughout our service today. Esther chapter 8. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. I'd like to start in the previous chapter, chapter 7, verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, If I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring." For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the, third, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. To the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service bred from the royal stud saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. May God give us understanding in this portion of scripture that we're reading today and we'll be preaching through to challenge and encourage our hearts in a relationship with God in a walk with the Lord. Let's pause now, if you remain standing with me, for a word of prayer as we pray today. And after a word of prayer, our choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word on Esther chapter 8. Shall we bow in prayer? Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here today. We thank you for this service. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it, allow us to hear your word and to understand it, give us understanding so that we might realize how great your salvation is for those who trust in you, what hope we have in you, and how that ought to encourage our hearts and motivate and spur us to the things, to do the things that you would have us to do, like getting your gospel out by living it in our lives and speaking it to people who have no hope and need the hope as we have and need the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins that he offers and eternal life that he offers by his shed blood on the cross. So we thank you. We do pray, Lord, for those who aren't here today, especially because of of health and sickness. I think of Sister Minnie Kathy and the struggle that she has had, Lord, that you would just watch over her, bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her heart. We add to the list today, Lord, Sister Lola Spears, and she's having some just some some medical issues and challenges in her life. We pray, Lord, that you would be with her, that you would encourage her heart, that you bring healing in her body. I pray also, Lord, for my father who is just struggling with his health as well, that you would encourage his heart. We thank you for those who have just had a role in ministering to him, or just given a word of encouragement. We pray for his strength, for his endurance, for comfort in these days of his life, Lord, when uh, he's getting older and his body is just uh, wearing out. We just pray that you would be grace to him, that you would, you would uh, allow him, Lord, to, to persevere and to, be, uh, to, to rely on you for comfort and for strength during these di- days. And, Lord, we thank you for this time together, for each person that's gathered here today. Thank you for those who came out to hear your word, to fellowship with your saints. Speak to their hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. It is so neat to see how God's Word comes to life and the different parts begin to make sense and blend together and we begin to see God's purpose and his plan. Esther is the book that talks about or the theme there is that God is working and he's working behind the scenes even when people don't recognize They don't see God and don't acknowledge God. Even when God's people seem to be down or discouraged or in a bad situation. And that's the background for the book of Esther. God's people have been conquered by a wicked and cruel people. And they've been taken captive. They've been exiled in a foreign land. They've been there for a while. And they're wondering... Is God going to step up for us or are we doomed? And God begins to show through many different means and many different ways that he hasn't forgotten his people. And his plan is still in place and he's still in control and he's still working according to his purpose. And his people fit in that purpose. Last week, we looked at how the tables were turned. The script was flipped. Haman, the evil one, had risen up to a position of authority and great power. He had exerted that power by getting the king to write a law that would destroy all the Jews because he hated that one Jew They wouldn't bow down to him and worship him. That Jew that he hated, his name was Mordecai. And he plotted to kill Mordecai. At the end of chapter 7, we see that the very gallows that Haman had built to hang Mordecai on that morning, this very gallows is where he himself was hanged. By the king. Now, normally, you know, when someone is hanged, you don't think, we often in, in our courtesy and our culture think that we ought not to cheer, we ought not to celebrate. But actually, when wickedness is brought to justice, we ought to celebrate. We ought to cheer, we ought to applaud, we ought to rejoice. That God has put wickedness in its place. And that's what happened with Haman. Notice at the end of chapter 7 it says, Then the wrath of the king abated. You can imagine what that looks like. For the kids in the, in the, in the congregation, it'd be like Hulk turning from green back to... His regular self. His clothes now fit. (laughs) The veins that popped out of his head aren't there anymore. It says his wrath, his anger abated. It went down, it settled down. That's what happened with the king. But the question I ask, and this question that is brought forth in chapter 8, is a new question. Just because you kill Haman, is the threat ended? Is the danger over? And that is a question that comes up in chapter 8. Haman is hanged. The king's wrath is abated. So it's kind of like, well, the story should end there, right? The threat is, is over. But the answer is no. The threat is not over. Why is that? Killing the perpetrator still does not eliminate the curse. Why does the Bible take us through chapter 8? Why wouldn't a nice story simply end at the end of chapter 7? The king's wrath is abated. It's cool. Everything is cool now. Haman is dead. Why does the story not end there? Is there, in fact, a spiritual lesson that we are to gain from this and a future revelation that we're to get about how God is doing things from the continuation of this story? Yes, there is. Search it out. Pay attention and see if you gleam what God is doing. It's in chapter 8. Here it is in a nutshell. Satan is the enemy of God's people. He seeks to destroy God's people. He has done that since Adam was was created. Sought to destroy mankind. It would seem that if we would just see the destruction of Satan, then the threat to mankind would end. But in fact, God makes it clear to us, and this picture, this story, illustrates that truth. That destroying Satan does not remove the threat entirely from mankind. In other words, we know that Satan is in, in Scripture is the enemy. You notice in this story, Haman is continually called the enemy of the Jews. Look at verse chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. You can substitute Jew for God's people, the enemy of God's people. So Haman represents Satan, in fact. And the, the th- thought and the question that's brought to us is, if we destroy, if, if someone comes and destroys Satan, does that end the threat to humanity? And the answer is no. And the answer is, why why is it no? It's because the curse remains. Well, the curse in this story is this. Haman had signed into law by the king that the Jews would be destroyed, and the date set for that was the 12th month on the 13th day. That law was still in effect, even though Haman had died. The king signed it, and he signed it with his signet ring. So how are we to deal with that? Well, you say, well, okay, that's just a story. Well, first of all, it's not just a story. (laughs) It's not something made up. This is reality. This is history. This is what happened. And, And God had it this way to teach us something. There's something that needed to be done for our salvation that's even greater than Satan being destroyed. Now, God is going to destroy Satan. Satan is the enemy of mankind and the enemy of God's people. He's a great threat to us. But there's something that comes up in the New Testament. It says this. This is in James chapter 1. I want you to to follow along with me. James chapter 1 verse 13 through 15 just three little verses there let no one say when he is tempted i am tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire you say okay pastor i get that i understand that but what does that have to do with satan Let no man say, when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. He's saying, you can't blame your temptations on God. He doesn't tempt people. So who tempts? It must be Satan, right? Satan is the tempter, the scripture says. You can blame your temptation on Satan, but you can't blame your sin on him. Because something comes out in this passage. It says here, each person is tempted... In other words, he goes past the thought of simply being presented with evil. Tempted has the thought of, yes, being presented with evil. Somebody suggests you do an evil thing. They're tempting you to do evil. But for you to take that suggestion, temptation is also the thought of you carrying on that suggestion. You take, giving in to that suggestion or that temptation. He says you give in to that. How? He says each person is tempted. Notice each person. He's talking about mankind. He's talking about our nature. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. I said this many a time, is that when I was young, my parents would try to get me to eat certain vegetables and they'd have spinach on the table. You know what? They could never tempt me to eat spinach. They could never tempt me, entice me to eat spinach. Why? Because there was nothing in my heart that liked spinach. Nothing. I loathed it. I hated it. It was disgusting to me. I didn't want a bite. I had to hold my nose and swallow just to get rid of it. There was nothing in me that was drawn to spinach. What this verse is saying, you are not tempted by the smell of something that makes you sin. Nothing makes you sin. What makes you sin is your own evil desire. Notice says each person, that's the desire of all of us, we have within our evil hearts a desire to do things that are opposed to God's will. It's in us. Now, somebody else might present a circumstance where we want to act on it, but it's in us to do that. In other words, nobody makes you like spinach. <laughs> There's got to be something in your heart that says, hmm, I like this. I think I'll try it. I think I'll do it. You act on your own desires. And the point there is that God does not tempt you. And to drive that another step further, it's not Satan. Even though he may tempt you, he doesn't make you sin. So eliminating Satan is only one part of the equation that, that, that causes our doom. Eliminating the temptation or the tempter is only part of it because if all temptation uh, 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 was gone, if all tempters were gone, we'd find temptation within our own heart. One man said it this way, one pastor said to me, Men who lust after women think it's the. It's, It's them seeing things that causes them. But he presented a case where there was a blind man (laughs) who was tempted in lust in his own heart. He hadn't seen a thing. Why? Because of his heart and his imagination of what he desired to do. The temptation comes from within is the point. And eliminating the external tempter only takes care of part of the solution. There's a spiritual lesson here. Satan is going to be destroyed. But that doesn't solve all of our problems if that's all that God did for us. But that's not the good news. That's not all that God does for us. And in fact, this chapter introduces what it is that God does. God is thorough In his salvation to his people. That's the whole title here. God is thorough in his salvation to his people. He doesn't simply get rid of Satan and say, hey, let's start with a new slate. We have a system in our culture that thinks that, yeah, if you can just wipe people's history clean, start in a new slate. Everybody would be all right. We think if we just tear down all the projects and tear down all the raggedy housing and put people in brand new housing, they'd be fine. Reality, no. Months later, there's going to be dirt and weeds and roaches and rats. There's going to be filth. There's going to be problems. There's going to be issues because it comes from within. So this chapter deals with that. Let's look at the first part of this. I want you to notice a couple of things. We mentioned Haman is hanged. The king's wrath is abated. And in verse 1, Queen Esther receives Haman's house. Isn't that something? It says, Queen... King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. That's not all that happens. One of the first things she does is she, she brings out, <laughs> I call it Mordecai is brought out. It says here, Mordecai came before the king for Esther had told what he was to her. The king didn't know The heritage of Esther, he didn't know the connection that Esther had with Mordecai. And now she tells him, this is, yes, my cousin, but he's my older cousin who has been a father to me all my life. He raised me. I love and respect him as I do my own father. She let that be known to the king at this time. So Mordecai is brought out. Compare that to Haman being outed. Remember in the previous chapter, Esther says, uh, the king says, who in the world would try and destroy all of your people that you would come to me? You could ask me for anything, but all you ask from me is your own life and the life of your people. Who is threatening your people? And she says, this wicked man, the evil, the enemy of all the Jews, Haman. At that point, you, you can see the reaction that Haman had. He had been outed. It had the truth about him had come out. It's interesting when you compare Haman and Mordecai. <clears throat> Mordecai, the truth about him and his relationship with Esther is brought out, and he's going to be exalted. The truth about Haman and his relationship with Esther, he wants to kill all of her people, including her, is brought out, and he is executed. Mordecai receives Haman's ring that was issued by the king. Look at verse 2. The king took off his signet ring. Now this is important. This signet ring is a sign of the king's authority. This is like having signing approval. You ever work for, I was in the business world as an engineer i worked for um, there in, in the field and my supervisor or my boss, if he took a vacation, he would assign someone his authority who could sign on his level while he was gone. And that's what's happening here. The king says, You have authority to sign and put into law anything that you desire, and it'd be as if I signed it myself. This is a signet ring. Mordecai has it now. It had belonged to Haman. Think about verse 2. The king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. In other words, at some point he had to take it off of Haman, probably off of his dead hanging body, and give it now to Mordecai and says, with this you have full authority. I want you to see how Mordecai is is rising in the rank he was a lowly servant that the king didn't even know anything about now the king has found out that 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 he has has worked to to uh, stop a a assassination attempt against him and and now he is he honored Mordecai and now he understands that Mordecai is in fact related to the Queen and he now assigns to Mordecai this signet ring. He gives Mordecai authority. What does all this help when the law is still out there to kill all the Jews? I want you to start with me at verse 3. You can see Esther comes to the king and she is still broken. It says, she fell at his feet. She wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. It says in in, in the middle of verse 5, she says, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews. So she's saying, King, please use your authority and revoke all that Haman, all the law that he has passed. Now, it's interesting to look at the king's response. Verse 7. Then the, the king said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to, to lay hands on the Jew's. What's the very next word? What's the very next word? Verse 8. But. Say it. But. Contrast, isn't it? He says, look, I've assigned to you the house that Haman had. I've killed Haman. Uh, I've I've elevated Mordecai. But what he's going to say is, what I've written, I've written. The law is the law. It cannot be revoked. It can't be changed. I wrote it into law. My signet ring has shown the authority, and it stands. It stands. Interesting dilemma here in the story of Esther. Like I said before, you would think that if it was a nice story, it would just end in chapter 7. But it doesn't. There's a problem here. The curse that is against the Jews, the law that's been written for all of them to be destroyed, is in place. Remember that law was written on the first month on the 13th day. It was to be put into effect on the 12th month on the 13th day. And it still stands, even though Haman is dead. The law still stands. So what can be done? The king says, I've done all this, verse 8, but you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring for an ed-. Here's the key phrase, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And that's true of any law they would write from this point on, but it's also true of the law that's already been written, that Haman deceptively had the king write, The king is saying, I can't do anything about that. I'm sorry. I can't change that. The curse is still on. So what's the solution? The solution comes in verses 9 through 14. And this is a picture of what God has done for us in our salvation. The curse is reversed. Mordecai... Writes a new law. It doesn't abolish the old. It allows the old to be fulfilled, but the fulfilling of the old brings protection to God's people. Think about it. He doesn't abolish the old, the law. The Old Testament (laughs) says God is holy, God is righteous, and God is just. It also says mankind is wicked, mankind is sinful, and mankind is condemned. The new covenant doesn't change any of that. God is holy, God is just. God is righteous. Mankind is still wicked. Mankind is sinful. And mankind is in fact condemned. The new covenant says, but Jesus. (laughs) But Jesus. The new covenant says, I am going to not abolish the old law. I'm going to put into place my grace that places the judgment that the old covenant states that's absolutely necessary, I'm going to place it on my son, Jesus. This is how God operates. In the New Testament is written this way. Second Corinthians 5, 21 says this, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Read it again. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God says there's an old law, an old covenant, that is a curse to mankind or pronounces a curse upon mankind. By saying God is holy, God is just and justified in his judgment, and he is righteous. Mankind is wicked, mankind is sinful, and therefore mankind is condemned. The new covenant comes along, says all that's true, (laughs) but Jesus. In other words, God, would you take the judgment that's on mankind and for those who trust in Jesus... Put that judgment on Jesus. So God, what he does is he doesn't just destroy Satan. He goes beyond that. He destroys Satan or he will finally destroy Satan. But beyond that, he places sin on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our new Savior. And though we are condemned and stand condemned before God, God says, I'm going to count my son as condemned. And he has paid for the sin of all who will trust in him. Esther preaches the gospel. God doesn't just sweep sin under the the rug. He does not just ignore his righteous law. He says, I'm going to fulfill it in my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The dilemma that Esther has is a great dilemma. The law that's been signed by the king can't be ignored. His authority can't be pushed aside. He can't say, well, I'm the king, but what I write don't really mean nothing. If that's the case, why write anything else? It doesn't mean anything. But what he wrote originally stands. Something else has to be done notice how it's done it says verse 9 the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month which is the month of Sivan on the third on the twenty-third day now this gives us a little timeline we know that the original law was signed on the first month on the thirteenth day now we got the third month of the twenty-third day that tells us a couple things First of all, God has worked rather swiftly. <laughs> In those short two months, from the first to the third month, Haman has gone to highest next to the king to being hanged. Mordecai has gone to a lowly servant to now beginning to be exalted by the king. The law that was signed into law on the first month, on the 13th day, that cannot be changed still stands, but now on the third month, on the 23rd day, something else is written. Let's see what it is that's written. Verse 10. The middle of verse 9. An edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews. Notice how Mordecai (laughs) is right there now and he has the authority to write law he has authority to put into place what is going to redeem his people a lowly servant that now has authority to write into law the tool that God is going to use to redeem his people is that not a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ born as a lowly servant Honored by the Father, disrespected by Satan and all of his forces, but has come to destroy those very forces. Haman is destroyed now. Mordecai alone stands, and Mordecai summons the advisors, and he writes this law. Notice how cleverly it is written. Verse 10, he wrote, in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Where did he get that ring from? (laughs) Who has that ring? It's Mordecai who has it by the king's authority. God is perfecting his thorough salvation of his people. There's no gaps in it. So verse 10, he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service. Now, a word there. He sends this message out. How? By swift horses that are used in the king's service. In other words, the king tooks, takes his best animals, his fleet of fine horses. and They're the fastest around, and he sends them to send the message. (laughs) Good news needs to be told quickly and needs to be spread to everybody. The gospel is the good news. God's desire is to send it out swiftly. You and I are couriers. Get your horse ready. Train it to be swift and fast. We are the couriers of the gospel. God desires that his gospel, the good news that brings redemption to his people, be sent out speedily, fast, quickly, by people you can count on to deliver the message accurately. That's me and you. Now, some would say that's just me. No way. No way. God has a fleet, (laughs) a fleet of swift horses. Everybody should say, (laughs) Make the horse sound. Everybody should recognize that God has called them to be that fleet of swift horses. Now in our day, (laughs) It wouldn't be horses, It'd be jets, it would be transportation of all kind, going to all places, by all means. Including the internet and email and all types of things that we can use. God wants his message to be given out and to be given out swiftly. Verse 10. He sent them, he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. The king king took the best. The king took the best of all, and he produced the best with it for his service. God is doing the same thing today. He wants us to be prepared to do his work. I was so encouraged by the efforts that have been exerted in the ministry this summer in various ways it's been such an encouragement to me to see god's people working and working hard and working diligently at the different tasks that they've been given not everybody does the same thing but it takes each individual working diligently working faithfully, being faithful to the job that they've done to to do what God would have us to do. I'm always amazed when I look on your faces and I see those who are seated here. Our church is not filled. It needs to be, but the way that's going to happen is by God's people faithfully continuing to do what God has called us to do to get the gospel out in every way that he allows us to do it. Be a part of that. Don't sit on the sidelines. Don't be the horse in the stable that nobody wanted to use because it, it wasn't ready to be ridden. Be a faithful servant. So the king sends these out. Verse 11, saying that the king allowed, here's the here's new law that Mordecai wrote, verse 11 saying that the king allowed the Jews who in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar so what did Mordecai do he says we're going to take the very day that, that plots the destruction of God's people that Haman says you know by, by the way Haman Haman cast lots to, to figure out this day and I don't know how it all came about but he says it's going to be the 13th day of the 12th month that's when all Jews will be destroyed Mordecai flips that and says, hey, on that very day that the Jews were slated to be destroyed, we sign into law by the signet ring of the king that the Jews will not be destroyed. How's that going to happen? I'll tell you how it's going to happen. Not only are they not going to be destroyed, they, they go from potential of being destroyed to having dominion, dominating. He says, you are now equipped by this edict to defend yourself. And he said, let me make it clear what defend means. You can kill, you can destroy, you can annihilate, and you can plunder their goods of any and everyone who comes against you. What God has done here is amazing. Haman thought that he would destroy at once all of God's people. And what he now does is identify all the enemies of God's people and dare them to act. And empower God's people to act against them. They went from being victims to being victors. This is the message of the gospel. (laughs) We went from being bait for Satan (laughs) to bringing the crushing blow on Satan and all of his dominion. Jesus Christ comes to destroy Satan and to reverse the curse that's been placed on us. See how this is reversed? They have now gone from being threatened to being the leader and the protected one. What's the impact of this new law? Well, as I mentioned, the curse is reversed. Look at verse 15. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with gold, a great golden crown, and a robe of fine linen and purple. So his dress tells you something about him. He's been exalted. He's been placed in a position of great authority. Think how quickly that's happened. From the first month and 13th day to now the third month and the 23rd day, he went from being threatened and and marked out by Haman to be annihilated with all of his people to now being the one who writes the new law to protect his people and now being exalted. You can tell by his dress, his great position. But here it goes in verse 15. If you couldn't tell by that, it says, And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Can you, you, you can hear that. It's like riding by the stadium and somebody hitting a home run and you hear the crowd roar. You can hear that. It says the people of Susa shouted and rejoiced. God was doing something behind the scenes as well in the hearts of the people. You, you kind of get a hint of it in chapter seven. We we hinted about this. Look at verse nine. Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance of the king, he says, "Moreover, <laughs> the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high." Why did Harbona suggest that? Something the tide was changing. I, I, I like watching athletics, I like uh, the sporting events, and, and you watch different things. Um, <clears throat> and you watch a game, what's exciting about a game is that at some point there's a changing point. You, usually you don't have a, a dominant player or team that just dominates throughout the whole game. Something happens that, 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 that is a change, that is a mark point. I watched a a tennis match a couple of weeks ago, and this young girl—I can't remember exactly. I don't remember her name or how old she was, but she was one of the youngest to come on the scene and to win. Uh, She beat the oldest Williams sister first in this tournament, in in uh, the—I think it's the British Open, not Open, that'd be golf, but uh, the the uh, tennis tournament there, Wimbledon. That's what it is. And so she won that, and she went on to win a couple of matches. And one of the matches that she won, she was down. And then all of a sudden, it was just like one strike. and You could tell what, what we call it momentum. Momentum had shifted in her favor. And, and you begin to cheer for her. I'm watching. Now. I don't really care who won or who lost. You begin to cheer for her and to see her gain uh, 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 momentum as it went on and become the victor. That's kind of what's happening way back in chapter 7 where Harbona says, you know, I, it, c- c- can we kind of interject here? He's he, he basically saying, I ain't never like Haman anyway. I ain't like dude. He had the nerve to have them gallows built for Mordecai. And, 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 and Harbona's probably saying, well, you know, the king just finding out about this because he couldn't sleep that night and he read the Chronicles, but I knew who Mordecai was all along. You know you always have people like that. Always, they always know what was going on. They ain't say nothing then, but they always knew what was happening. It's kind of like Harbona saying this, but th- it th- shows you a shift in momentum that's going on. And the king jumps on it right away. He says, hang him on them. Hang him. It's over <laughs> for Haman after that. And you can see... Mordecai, the, the momentum has shifted and, and gone in his favor. Let me say this, this is not accident. This is not good luck. This is God working for the cause of his people to bring about his purpose. It wasn't an accident that Esther was, was favored over all the women there and chosen finally to become queen. As I mentioned in the previous sermon, God didn't appoint her to be queen just to dress up and look pretty. God had a purpose for her, and she's fulfilling that purpose. And so we see God's plan is falling into line. And I want you to know that God is doing the same thing today. He's doing the same thing, and his purpose is the same. If you get the big picture of his purpose, his purpose is to deliver his people. He will not let any threat be raised against his people and let it succeed. There's a reason why he has a purpose in this particular group called his people is because this is what he has chosen to bring about the Savior of the world the lord jesus christ here's something interesting well we christians have this 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 habit of seeing everything through the eyes of jesus (laughs) you know what that's called seeing things god's way seeing things god's way having a godly perspective in other words seeing what god is doing regardless of all the other noise that's happening in our world we need to get a view and see what god is doing and then we need to line up our lives with that let me tell you what that looks like i began to see what god is doing and i went from a path of studying to be an engineer and, and getting a degree to do that and saying god that's not what you have for me you might have that for somebody else but that's not what you have for me And he began to, to guide me and shape me and point me and direct me in this work, in this ministry. God is doing the same thing all over. He's doing the same thing in your life. He's saying, look, what's going on in your life is not just for your good or for your glory. It's for my purpose. Why don't you sign in on that? Why don't you say, Lord, my life is yours do it as you please. I want to fulfill your purpose. I want to be a part of your will, and I will do. I will give my life for your glory. I recognize. And why? Why would a person do that? why would a person be that committed? Well, I can give you several instances of people who've been that commuted, committed for foolish things. People who give their lives. Uh, uh, terrorists who think that they're going to die and have countless virgins in. In, 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 in some expression of heaven somewhere, they, they bought into a lie. So people do it for a lot of foolish reasons, but we do it for the truth. And the truth is this. That God has revealed that he has called us to himself by sending his son to die on a cross for our sins. And when we realize how great that is, in other words, I was in the grasp of Satan on my way to hell. Satan wanted to destroy me. and He wants to destroy you. And he would take pleasure in doing that. When I was in the grasp of Satan, God says, no, not him. Not today. He's mine. What did I do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. In the eyes of God, I was chosen by him. He says, I have you and I will save you. He opened my eyes to who he is and he brought me to to confess my sin and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to to give myself to him and for him because of what he has done for me. When I realized what God has done for me, I just fell out in amazement. God, why me? Why am I part of your purpose why am i chosen to enjoy the the, the great things that you have prepared the bible says in first in corinthians chapter 2 we can't imagine the things that god has prepared for us it will blow our minds the things that he has done we will say why me god of all people why have you forgiven my sin and cleansed my heart given me a new heart called me to be your child Giving me eternal life. Save me from my sin. Have you ever looked at other people? Have you ever seen your friends who aren't here anymore? Your friends who don't know Christ, who haven't heard the gospel, don't realize what the gospel really means. God has brought the gospel to you for a reason and for a purpose, and it ought to just blow you away. It ought to do it to the point where you are committed to him and say, God, Whatever you have for me, I realize it's for good. It's for eternity, and I sign on to that. Take my life. Let it be used for your glory. So we realize that God is working in our own lives as he's working behind the scenes. And this Esther, he's doing it for his purpose, and that is to bring, to promote his son. To promote his son. His son is the Savior that has died for the salvation of his people it's a glory it, it's a glorious thing to be a part of that group and we ought to live our lives in that realization how blessed we are to be trusting in God Now, maybe you don't recognize how God is speaking to you today so you're not here by accident you've been given a message because God is speaking to you to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and to do that now. Our prayer is that you will do that. You will not delay. You will speak to us or with us and let us know how we can help you and pray for you. You commit your life totally to God and whatever he has in store and in line for you. You just say yes to God. Father, we thank you for your truth today. For those who would respond to your word we pray though that they make it known they make it known to those to us here so that we can pray for them we can guide them we can show what you have in store for them we pray for those who have committed to your truth in that way that you would just renew their heart strengthen, and encourage them motivate them to not give up but to continue on to be faithful Because you are faithful. You're working behind the scenes. Open our eyes that we might see how you love us and how you are working in so many ways to bring about your purpose in our lives, and we are connected with that purpose. We thank you for that. May we be devoted to you. May we love you. May we follow you. May we obey you. May we serve you. May we give our lives for you because you've given your life for us. We pray this now. Jesus' name.